Episode 1320 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Jeff, has anything relevant to our interests happened since the last podcast? I don't know what we're going to talk about today. I was at the gym last night on uh, on Tuesday night. Got there around I don't know six o'clock p.m. and I, I like to I like to go climb and I'll keep my phone I'll bring it around because in between climbs I don't know if you've gone climbing since we talked about that the last time but in between in between climbs I like to just you know sit you have to rest yourself and so while I'm sitting for a few minutes at a time I'll just check my phone see what's going on see if I need to I don't know like hurry home to write about Bryce Harper or Manny Machado signing or maybe Jerry Depoto traded his team for the entirety of another team and so I was climbing and and Tuesday night I I noticed that there's there's a lot more notifications than than there usually are over here. Let's <laughs> let's see what's going on. My and my mind started to race because I was thinking, what I don't I don't tweet so often that I'm like known to be the point person for almost anything. So I wasn't sure if like there was a Shohei Otani thing or maybe just some some big trade. Maybe I got looped into some sort of annoying Twitter thread where like some cele- <laughs> I get tagged and then everybody else just starts talking amongst themselves and. <laughs> and then I, I looked at my notifications. I don't know what your phone does, but when I when I look open Twitter on my phone, it set, it sets a cap at like twenty notifications or something, <laughs> even if there are more than that. So I'm yeah. I go over there and I'm like, all right, twenty notifications. What's going on? And then I'm scrolling and I'm scrolling and I'm scrolling, <laughs> and there's like probably a hundred and fifty notifications <laughs> because yep. I mean everybody who's listening already knows where this is going because Williams <laughs> Astadio hit a home run. And pimped the living shit out of it all the way around the bases. Although, to be honest, maybe an even more impressive job was performed by the announcer who held a note for the entirety of Estadio's circumnavigation yep. of the bases. But in any case, big home run that caught the attention of, I think, everybody in the world. ESPN yep. tweeted about, about Williams Estadio hitting a winter ball home run. Although... Not just a winter ball home run, to be clear. This is not Williams Estadio showing off because he hit one home run. This is a playoff home run that he hit for his team yeah. in game five. One one game, eighth inning. That's right. Big homer. Hit it off of Dielis Guerra, a former yep. and possibly future major league pitcher. Mm-hmm. Two outs in the inning. One one tie bottom of the eighth in game five of a best of seven series. The series tied two games to two. So a huge home run that Estadio hit. He is now eight for twenty in the playoffs with a home run. He is likely. I think, to be the league's MVP. Yeah, this is amazing. Like, you know, the the tired, wired Twitter meme? This is like <laughs> tired is bat flips and wired is what Astadio did here, which is not a flip at all. It was just a pose with both of his hands just resting on the bat knob as he was watching to see whether this ball would leave or not. He went down to get this ball. Now he's already down because he's Williams Astadio and he's just not a very big guy. But even for him, he kind of golfed it and then he did a little bit of the Carlton Fisk thing and he was kind of gesturing it fair. And then he was doing the pose, just gazing at it as it went out. And then he just had a joyous, he just basically skipped around the bases, high-fived everyone he passed. It was just wonderful. And how lucky are we? How much joy has this man brought us over the past year or so? And how improbable is that? Like, he's such an improbable player in every way, statistically speaking. And that's how we were introduced to him as just the guy who never strikes out and also at the time never walked and never hit home runs. And that was fun. But what were the odds that then that player who shouldn't exist would then turn into (laughs) like the most fun player even aside from that? Like I would guess that, I don't know, 90 or more percent of the people exposed to this clip had no idea who William Testadio was. I mean, he was on the top 10 plays on SportsCenter. Most people not listening to this podcast, not watching Twins games, probably don't know. And if they know him, they probably don't know that he is this strikeout rate outlier And yet, this is like the third time he has gone viral in the last year, right? Like less than the last year because he had the no-look pickoff in spring training as a catcher. 
And then he had just the sprint around the bases that was made into artwork and memes and gifts. And now he's had this. I don't know if I'm forgetting anything. There were other fun plays mixed in there. But so it's like, I mean, he's just among the, the better known base. Is Williams Estadio the face of baseball? Don't <laughs> forget, it? I think, wasn't there a hidden ball trick that he did? As oh, well? right. Yeah, hidden ball trick too. It's Unreal. Like the, never striking out is like the, the least well-known thing about him at this point. He just He's just getting headlines for being himself, basically. In the last few years, I wonder, like Bartolo Colon is a huge fan base, right? Everybody loves Bartolo Colon because he's like 74 years old and he's a big fat guy who was playing baseball. And for a little while, he was pretty good too. He had an incredible comeback story. I don't want to, I don't want to diminish the magnitude of what Bartolo Colon accomplished, but certainly by the end, Colon was no longer very good and, and people, people loved him. It was one of those things where I, I know that people did like Bartolo Colon, but the fan base felt more ironic than sincere to me, at least online, in, mm-hmm. in the way that so many things on the internet are not actually genuinely felt. But I thought, like, people, I thought that at the core, it was it was mostly people making fun of Bartolo Colon. I thought that he was just like, oh, look at this big fat guy trying to play baseball. And may, maybe I'm completely wrong about that. You can correct me. I won't know if you do, but you can still do that if it <laughs> makes you feel better. But Astadio comes along and, like, he is, I'm, I'm not going to say it has a similar build to Colon, but like he's similarly removed from the mean of your standard <laughs> baseball player. He's also 18 or 19 years younger than Cologne is, but he's he's listed at 5'9", 225. He's probably like 5'1", 425. I don't know what he is, but <laughs> he comes along. I don't know who first identified him, whether it was you or Sam or, or even somebody else, just seeing him in the Carson, low minors. Carson Sestouli. There were, Carson there were people at Baseball America who were making a big deal of it. Yeah, I think there were a few independent discoveries of William Testadio, but yeah, yeah someone but, was first. I don't. We weren't first, but someone was. And you know, there there was the discovery of Astadio at first, being like, "Oh, look at this! Look at this weird player who never strikes out." But then right. over time, certainly in the last few years, it started to become more of, "Hey, this guy actually could and even should make it. He's still a catcher, and now he's actually learning to hit better." And then the powers come along. I know you were just making this point, but what were the odds that a player who is so many standard deviations removed from the average in terms of his statistical output? becomes a player who's good enough to make the major leagues, and he has this charisma and likability that is also multiple standard deviations removed from the average. Those two don't have to go hand in hand. There's every reason for him to be super boring if he wanted to be. He's just like, yeah, I don't strike out. I just hit the ball, and I'm not interesting. But the dude is incredibly interesting, and and it's just... So much fun to watch. The clip from the winter ball is exactly what we all want baseball to be. I know Brandon McCarthy tweeted something to that effect. A lot of people tweeted something to that effect. That that sort of enthusiasm is infectious. You can't watch that clip and not smile about it unless you're, well, I don't want to say Brian McCann because that's the tired joke. But I mean, honestly, unless you're Brian McCann. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I was going to bring that up because I, I saw some people almost preemptively saying, like, anyone who complains about this, like, they don't understand what fun is. And it seems like at this point, I don't know that that many people actually are making that complaint anymore. It, it seems like everyone's just so conditioned to think that someone somewhere is complaining about it. And I'm sure someone somewhere is. You can always just find a random Twitter person who is tweeting something about whatever it is if you're looking for someone to say, yeah, this kind of person exists. But I don't know. I'm certainly not going out of my way to find anyone who is condemning William Testadio for this display, but it's I didn't see anything high profile. It seems like almost like maybe we've moved past that. I don't know. Maybe maybe that is the the legacy of Yasiel Puig's time in Los Angeles. I, I think he was a, a great player at times, but I think he brought this into the public eye and really made us have this conversation. And he was such a flashpoint for looking like you're enjoying yourself on the field that I think at this point, people sort of accept it. I'm sure some people are, are still annoyed about it. But when Astadio does it, I just I don't think you can interpret it as him showing someone up. It's just joy. He's just having fun out there. He's just playing a kid's game. It's what we say we want all players to do. So I don't know whether there actually was a backlash or whether we're just inventing straw people at this point who actually have a problem with these type of place but hopefully that that kind of backlash is is receding and i think i think it i think it's gay marriage at this point and not to not to get political but of course there there's a pretty rapid politically speaking there's a rapid flip in in society's 
estimation of of the validity of gay marriage. And to this mm-hmm. point, it's it's not even borderline controversial. And of course, if you go searching for people, then there are, are still hubs of of people who are, let's say, not quite so on board. Uh, just in the same way that you could search Twitter, and it doesn't take very long to find a few people who are saying, oh, if Astadio were pitching in my league, says someone who plays softball with other 47-year-olds, he'd right. get a, I don't know, underhanded pitch right to the ribs or something. <laughs> of course, some people are still out there, and there are still going to be pitchers in the major leagues who who take offense to stuff like this and, and throw pitches at hitters. That's not going to go away until the uh, the population of, of those traditionalists reaches like a, I don't know, a, a negative critical mass until there's like mm-hmm. 10% of them or less, at which point there's just going to be no support at all for that sort of vengeance on, on the field. But I think mm-hmm. I think the conversation is over. The The battle has been won. It was a, It's a humiliating battle to have gotten involved in in the first place because I can't understand the argument against players performing with emotion and passion. The whole damn thing is a freaking performance that they're putting on for us wearing their big fluffy pajamas or in alternate cases their super skin tight pajamas and that it's all it's all just performance art, right? So why would you not what artist under any circumstances do you want to watch do his or her job and not emote in the process? This is so much more fun. This is like it's hard to believe that this was actually like a, a conflict, but it's over. It's never coming back. The conversation is we won. All the all the fun people won. Baseball yeah. can is slow, but it can be fun. Yeah. One of my friends was making this point to me earlier. I hadn't really considered this, but the idea that baseball is so hidebound and hates fun and celebration, and, and there's certainly something to that, but he's pointing out that the home run trot in itself is just inherently sort of a a self-aggrandizing act. Like you can't, I mean, you can just put your head down and run around the bases, but you're still sort of like, that could just be a formality. We could just say, well, the ball went over the fence and uh, you scored however many runs you scored and that's it. You can go back to the dugout now, but we still make them go through the motions of actually running around the bases while the other team is hanging its head. And that's a, it's almost like just a built-in celebration in a way that you don't really get in a lot of other sports. Like I'm trying to think of a comp for that because, of course, you score a goal, you can celebrate, you score a touchdown, you celebrate, or maybe you get fined for that too, or you used to. But that's after the play, right? And the home run trot is part of the play. It makes the play official and it it is sort of inherently a celebratory act so why not look happy while you're doing it right how is david ortiz not showing out the pitcher when he took 35 seconds around the bases <laughs> when adam rosales is doing it in half that amount of time and just because it was like mainstreamed and, and made official everybody has to do it just because it's permissible doesn't mean that if you go slower we certainly have seen enough video evidence i think in the minor leagues of players who just like really took their time to get around yep. the bases and then you know there's a conversation at home plate and that's even where there's a critical difference because if you do something like that if you do it with the intent of trying to make a scene and showing up the pitcher that is when you can understand someone being upset. No one likes to have their noses rubbed in it, but a bat flip mm-hmm. is, well, look, we don't need to relitigate this. We're all on the same page. We know what a bat flip mm-hmm. is and what a bat flip isn't. Yeah, I don't care about bat flips anymore. Just give me the bat pose. This Astadio has <laughs> pioneered a new art form. Is, this, is that, if you, if there were, and let's agree that there should be multiple Williams Astadio statues erected at Major League Ballparks <laughs> to this day. Right. But what do you choose? <laughs> yeah, what do you, what do you choose? And I think there's the two contenders, right? There's the one of him looking silly riding third base with his hat flying off, and yeah. there's him on, like, kneeling as if he's listening to, like, a motivational speech at <laughs> halftime from his manager. Leading on his bat, watching a home run sail out of the ballpark. Which is which is the better statue? Yeah, or I guess yeah. Those are the the leading contenders. I mean, the the no look pickoff was pretty cool, and but maybe you need that to be in motion to really convey how cool it was. <laughs> Whereas this, yeah, I I don't know. I've seen. Someone made a a drawing of him with his hair flowing behind him after his helmet flew off and it's all different colors and it's beautiful. And I think that is probably my favorite. But for an actual statue, I think I might like the, the posing at home plate with his hands on the bat knob. Pretty great. And it's funny that this happened just hours after we were dismissing the idea of televising winter leagues as something anyone would care about. <laughs> and then suddenly everyone in the world, it's on Sports Center, the Venezuelan Winter League. But again, probably an outlier because Williams Estadio is an outlier in all things.
I was pitched a topic by Fangraphs's Alex Chamberlain overnight. Mm-hmm. He uh, he came to me. He referred to me as the foremost Astadio enthusiast. I don't think that's true. I think it's now a uh, shared amongst the world. We're all Astadio yeah, many enthusiasts. Many way tie. <laughs> yeah, many way tie. Billions of people in the world who love Astadio now. <laughs> but he pitched the idea that is Williams Astadio the last and best shot at tying or breaking Joe DiMaggio's 56 game hitting streak. Yeah. And I tried to run through a little bit of math. I did, there's no way I was going to calculate the actual odds of, of doing that because it's, it's so much more complicated than you'd think. But I did at least go to the steamer projections for 2019, and I calculated for everyone the, the rate of hits per plate appearance. It can't be hits per at bat because, of course, if you <laughs> bat four times in a game and you draw three walks and you go over one, a hitting streak is over. That's that's an over, and you can't, mm-hmm. can't do anything about it. Walks don't help. A hitting streak. So looking at Williams Estadio, at least according to Steamer, he has the third highest projected rate of hits per plate appearance in baseball. Now, the guy in first place is a Rockies minor leaguer named Jonathan Daza. I think that's a, a weird <laughs> reach. He's played a half season double A. I don't know what that's all about. But in, to his credit, he's posted really high averages in the minors. And the guy in second place, more predictably, is Daniel Murphy, who has been very good in the past. Also is playing in Colorado, doesn't strike out very much. Colorado is kind of cheating. It would only make sense that I think if anyone were to threaten the record, it would happen in Colorado, maybe Boston for a right-handed pull hitter. But those are are the two. Hitting streaks don't get asterisks, I guess. But Astadio still indeed up there. Maybe not that surprising because his his tendency to not strike out doesn't have to help him here if he just hit really bad balls in play. And indeed, his career batting average on balls in play is is not league average. It's it's below it because he is a right-handed hitter who is slow, uh, which you would know from looking at him. But he doesn't walk. He doesn't get hit by that many pitches. And if the if the power turn is real, he might even be better than the projection. So in any case, Astadio, probably like a top five or top ten candidate to be the most threatening player to Joe DiMaggio's unthreatenable, impossible hitting streak. It'll never be threatened. The only thing that yeah. really it would come down to then would be placing the batting order and how often you play. Astadio not in line for regular at-bats with the Twins, which is a shame. Also, he's not someone you would traditionally imagined at the top of the lineup when you would get more opportunities but on the other hand the twins did lose their leadoff hitter from last season and there's not a whole lot of players on that roster you would want to have at the top of the lineup given that nelson cruz people like that are going to be in the middle so i don't know this is a reach but hit astadio second or first (laughs) yeah well that's the big question now i mean he's been such a big story and yet it's not really clear where or how he's going to play but he has to like he's just legitimately good now he's also i mean i guess nelson cruz is now the most famous minnesota twin but after that it's got to be williams estadio right i mean who else is i don't know that byron buxton or miguel sano i don't think any of these guys is is moving the needle as much as williams estadio who's just become a cult hero so i don't know you look at the twins death chart on MLB.com right now and he's listed as the starting third baseman and Mm -hmm. also the backup catcher which uh, doesn't really seem I don't know it's hard to know how he slots in like there's not that clear a path to playing time you would think just based on his pure performance but it seems like he's getting better as a player and he's also just as a pure marketing ploy (laughs) he just seems like someone who is worth a lot more than your typical bench player. He uh, he is, I guess he's optionable, right? Because his contract was just purchased for the first time last season. So he has options. The Twins can put him in the minors. If they wanted to be spoil sports, Twins, if you're listening, don't effing do it. And here's here's what here's what I think actually makes the most sense. If the Twins are going to make room, if they want Miguel Sano to play a third base, whatever, trade Williams Estadio to the Rockies. That is, and not just saying that yes. because I wanted to be in Colorado, but the Rockies don't have a very good catcher. They could use him. He's apparently not a starter for the Twins. Put him in Colorado and just let him hit. Just let him bat 600 times. See what happens. He'll hit like 350. It's a perfect environment for him to be in. There's no real catcher depth that would be negatively threatened, I guess, in that you don't really worry about Tom Murphy or Chris Iannetta or Tony Walters. Let Astadio go to Colorado and start. He can also back up at first base when Daniel Murphy is doing whatever or Ian Desmond is doing whatever. Williams Astadio in Colorado. It's got to happen. Yeah, I wonder if you were trying to trade or trade for Astadio, does the fact that he is just a a cult hero, does that even enter the negotiations? Is it like, well, here's his pure projection. This is what he is worth war-wise. 
Or is it like, hey, he's super famous and personable, and if you're getting Estadio, like you're going to get an Estadio bobblehead day, and you're going to have a new most popular player on your team. I don't know whether that enters the baseball operations conversation, but if you were like in the marketing department and your team acquired William Estadio, that'd be like the best day of your year. Here's what I do. Let's say you're, I don't know, the Phillies, right? And you are mm-hmm. trying to sign Bryce Harper or Manny Machado. Let's say you come up short. Let's say, I don't know, <laughs> Machado signs first. And you're like, well, we missed on Machado, but we're at least going to try for Harper. The day it comes out that Harper signed with somebody else, <laughs> you trade for Williams Estadio. And everybody is pleased. <laughs> yes, he's the consolation prize for every big free agent you miss out on. I like that. All right. Well, I I don't know what we'll be talking about next, but I'm sure it will involve Williams Estadio. So keep doing you, Williams, and uh, <laughs> we'll see you in spring training. So I don't really have any other big baseball news. I have some very small baseball hmm. news, which is that the Brewers signed Jake Petrika, who is one of my minor league free agent draft picks, one of my more boring ones, who I picked purely because he's been in the big leagues a lot lately and hasn't been particularly good, but he's been there. And uh, they signed him to a split contract, so he is on the 40-man, which sounds promising. Okay. The, I mean, the, the other minor news, maybe you're going to bring this up. Jaime Garcia has retired. And in uh, the rain, the rain, well, yeah. <laughs> but you brought up Jake Patricka. The Rangers <laughs> yep. signed Shelby Miller, which whatever. The Mariners yeah, forgot that Shelby Miller existed, actually. <laughs> and he he still throws pretty hard. It's just you know it's a shame yeah. about what it looks like. But yeah. the Mariners have signed 2009 second overall draft pick Dustin Ackley to a minor <laughs> league contract. I want. I'm going to read you. Well, I'm going to. I'm going to ask you. What do you think was Dustin Ackley's on base percentage last season in AAA? And I'm going to give you three options. The three options are 178, 278, and 378. Which was Dustin Ackley's on-base percentage last season? Gosh, I have almost no idea. I don't know how long he played or where he played. I (laughs) haven't really been keeping close tabs on Dustin Ackley. I will say he had a short stint somewhere, and it was 178. 378, Dustin Ackley. Last season, as a 30-year-old, still more walks. Than strikeouts, he's still got it as long as it is the ability to get on base against inferior minor league competition. But anyway, he's he's gonna report to Tacoma. But it would be funny to see him end up in Seattle, as one of my friends put it. This is like god level fan trolling. This is just you, there are certain players I think even when it's like the old administration, you should just know to stay away from. And if I were in charge of the Mariners, I would have stayed away from this one. But whatever, Jerry, you're opening old wounds. Yeah, who are they gonna bring back? Chris Snelling next, or who, who would be? <laughs> Another disappointing Mariner who uh, would All be of them. mixed feelings. Yeah, I guess a long list you could choose from. All right. So still no Machado news, still no Harper news. So we have got a guest today. It's a guest I'm excited about. So some of you will remember that on episode 1144, we talked to a volcanologist, Eric Clemetti, who Jeff is a big fan of. And we talked a little bit about baseball, but we mostly talked about volcanoes, let's be honest. And today we are talking to someone from another scientific field that is loosely related to baseball. Shannon Towie, she works for NASA JPL on multiple Mars missions, and she is also a big baseball nerd. So we're going to talk to her a bit about baseball and her Mets fandom, and also her work at NASA JPL, which is really kind of cool. So you got your volcano nerd episode and i get my (laughs) space nerd episode something for each of us and let me clear the air by saying that in talking to shannon which ben and i have already done i referred to eric clemetti as being a a professor at denison college i misspoke it's denison university denison Ah, university i am so so very sorry to everyone who i've (laughs) been sorry to all those denison grads out there all right we will be right back with shannon as we contaminate the sky the moon becomes a shrieking So I am enough of a space geek that I get excited when I see that someone from NASA has followed me on Twitter, and even more so when I see that her Twitter bio says she's a baseball data nerd, because that gives me an excuse to have her on a baseball podcast to talk a bit about baseball, but also about space. So we are excited to be joined now by Shannon Towie. She is a mission planning and execution systems engineer at NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. She works on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and the Mars 2020 mission. 
Shannon, I don't know what incredibly cool and complex work you are currently not doing because you've decided to leave a little early to appear on a silly sports podcast to talk about a silly sport. But thank you for being here. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, my first question is, why are you working right now? (laughs) Because I actually emailed a few people at NASA last week about a story that I'm working on, forgetting that the government is horribly broken. (laughs) And I got a couple auto responses that said, NASA is currently closed due to a lapse in government funding. I am in furlough status. Therefore, I am unable to respond to your message at this time. And JPL is federally funded, but you are still at your post. So I can only assume that means that you are so essential that society would collapse without you. Well, that's not entirely true. (laughs) However, (laughs) JPL is is actually managed by Caltech and we're Mm -hmm. contracted by NASA. So during federal shutdowns, Caltech usually steps in to keep us open. We're the only NASA center currently working, but almost no one at JPL has been furloughed so far. So what are you (laughs) working on currently? So uh, as you said, I currently work on uh, two missions. MRO, which is the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Um, that's a mission that's been going on for a while. It's currently in operations. It's an orbiter on Mars. And my other project is Mars 2020, which is our next rover mission that will be launched in 2020. Yeah. Um, and I'm working on some ground data tools for that. So I will ask you about that in a minute. But before you joined JPL, you had another cool science job. You were a detector technologist at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN in Switzerland, working on one of the experiments that previously played a part in discovering the Higgs boson. So I guess at some point you faced a decision like, do I want to keep working on discovering subatomic particles and explaining how Mm -hmm. the universe works? Or do I want to discover life on other planets? Just like one of those typical career choices that we all encounter. (laughs) Yeah, I worked at CERN. So I did a physics undergrad. So that's what my major was in. But upon graduation, I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to keep going through like a physics PhD track or do something else. And so I was uh, lucky enough to get hired on for a year at CERN so I can try to figure that out. And Mm -hmm. it was a total blast to work there. I learned a whole lot, got to participate in a lot of very cool projects and research there. But when that was sort of after a year there, I was kind of ready to come back and try to like pivot into engineering. So that was what led me to JPL and my mm. current position. Yeah. You just kind of took a gap year, just worked it. Yeah, it was, a gap, <laughs> yeah it, was, it was a good gap year. <laughs> what everyone does when they're just graduated from college trying to figure <laughs> out what to do with their life. I'll just go <laughs> search for some you subatomic know, particles. It, worked, <laughs> it worked out. In fact, as a Mets fan, that year was when the Mets were in the World Series. Yeah. And uh, so we were doing a, an experiment at CERN that was like a 24-hour experiment. And I was signing up for like the overnight shifts because that was when the games were on <laughs> the time zone. So I'd be like, I'm going to be up at 3.40 a.m. to watch the World Series anyway. So might as well stay up the whole night. You mentioned the Mets. I think it's my responsibility to at least say the word baseball in this podcast. And so that mission has now been accomplished and we can move on from there. But, you know, whenever anyone is maybe younger and, and just really, really emotionally invested in sports and when, when something happens and someone, some authority figure will say, oh, you should look at the bigger picture, have some perspective, you know, it's just sports, whatever. And few people might be more capable of looking at the bigger picture than you, given that you are looking at the, <laughs> one of the biggest pictures that is in existence. What so the, also the smallest picture at the also same the time. smallest so that's true yeah. that's true everything is inside baseball but <laughs> what is then maybe this is too deep of a question what is baseball to you how do you consume it and how are you invested given the magnitude of everything else that you're dealing with in your day to day life well I've always been interested in sort of like math and and statistics and data and so that's an obvious sort of parallel between physics and baseball that you do a lot of data analysis in both. And I've been interested in sort of baseball data probably since forever, pretty much. I sort of started getting into baseball as a kid around the last time that the Mets were good before 2015, which was 2006, which was um, when I really started like watching a lot of baseball games and trying to, I don't know, just got, just got into it as a fan. And then my dad actually gave me a book, which was one of like the OG baseball stats books. I think it was like The Hidden Game of Baseball mm, by yeah. Thorne and Palmer. And then I read through most of that as like a young teenager. And that really sort of got me sort of more into baseball because you could kind of see that there is some pattern behind it and some kind of logic and predictability in, in how it operates. 
as a system. And so that was around the same time that I was getting into physics as well. And so I think that maybe that was related. Maybe it's just sort of an interest in trying to figure out sort of the hidden logic behind systems that we see either if it's a baseball game or particle physics or whatever, (laughs) you know, still (laughs) you're gathering data and trying to make inferences. And I find that rewarding. Yeah. And you have a personal site where you've published some research. And a couple of years ago, you did a post on pitcher classification. And I'm sure that if you wanted to apply your skills to something a lot less interesting and of value to (laughs) the universe and the species, you probably could have done that in baseball. Did you ever consider trying to work in baseball? Or were you just always kind of locked into what you ended up doing? I kind of considered it around when I was like applying to jobs outside of physics. But I didn't look that far into it, probably because I wasn't quite sure at the time. Now I think it's definitely more the case that that a lot of baseball professionals really like sort of people with physics backgrounds. Mm-hmm. But a couple of years ago, like I wasn't sure that was the case. And I knew some people at JPL already. And like it kind of felt like that was sort of a more natural progression. But it's not to say I won't never work in baseball. Like I, I do think baseball is a lot of fun. So, um, mm-hmm. But it's definitely sort of more of a niche <laughs> than... <laughs> Than maybe what I was looking for at the time. There are, there's no shortage of, let's say, I know there are like PhD climate scientists working for baseball teams now. There are just PhDs oh, yeah. from all kinds of different fields that are working baseball to say nothing of sports science. I think it's science. very cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know, maybe maybe after this uh, particular podcast gets published, then you're gonna you're gonna start getting some emails. <laughs> well, maybe after maybe after the rover next rover lands, <laughs> get through that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Are there questions in baseball that that fascinate you? I mean, maybe not as big as life on Mars, but it, just in terms of mysteries about the game or things that you would want to look into or, or discoveries that have been made that you've been particularly fascinated by? Yeah, I've been trying to follow like some baseball research. I am really interested in sort of like pitchers and pitching and either like sort of pitch sequences or sort of just individual pitcher development, which is probably like that that blog post that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Like I try to get into sort of like pitcher classifications and for like individual pitchers. But some of the questions that I'm mostly interested in are kind of the more sort of like physical questions, like how much can we determine from like a, a pure physics standpoint, you know, like speed and 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 spin rate and like all the sort of like physical parameters of, of a single pitch that you can record. And can we say things about sort of the greater game from those like, you know, sort of pure physical measurements? I think that's really interesting mm-hmm. development. And I would love to, you know, learn more about what people are doing there. So yeah. Is a rover with 23 cameras more complicated than StatCast or the same, <laughs> about the same? Yeah, roughly the same, probably no. <laughs> yeah. Would you, as a, as I guess the uh, the most recent Mets fan that we've spoken to on this podcast, mm-hmm. or certainly maybe maybe the only Mets fan we've spoken to since the the Mets were placed under new management, can we get the official statement from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory on your estimation, your evaluation <laughs> of new general manager Brody Van Wagenen? I think we need to give him at least a full off season <laughs> before we can make any uh, any statements. I, I I like what he's been saying, but I I'm not going to make an official statement. <laughs> <laughs> from NASA on Brody. Did you what uh, look, I don't know how much you're at you actually get to think about the Mets during the offseason. I don't know what mm-hmm. your day to day is like. We're trying to suss that out. But you know, I th- I believe that it came down to the finalists being Van de Wagenen and Haim Bloom from the Rays and Doug Melvin from mm-hmm. the Brewers before. Did you have a, a rooting interest? And if so, what was your rooting interest? You know, I I did try to follow, but I I didn't know enough really about the particular candidates. I thought that Brody Van Wagenen might have been kind of like a wild card. That's that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't quite sure what, how to evaluate him. I did think one of the other guys was like a young, like very analytics focused person, right? That would presumably be High and Bloom coming from Tampa. Yeah, 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 Bloom. Mm-hmm. So I thought I thought he would have been a more interesting choice because I know well rumors on Twitter is that the Mets analytics department may not be quite as advanced as some other teams. Um, <laughs> that could confuse so, you, probably. Yeah, so I was hoping for them to sort of you know jump more into into analytics, but the Mets have sort of overarching problems, I guess, in their front office besides using more analytics, which is uh, yeah. sort of you know. The, the will ponds. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Actually, the yeah, I don't know if uh, Bloom would have been a more interesting choice. Maybe maybe it would have been a better choice. I don't know, but yeah. <laughs> interesting, perhaps not. But yeah, there's actually a kind of a, an interesting physics mystery surrounding the Mets right now. I don't know if yeah. you're aware of it, but you could look into it and maybe solve it. But Jeff has written about <laughs> this, that it, it seems like there's something strange going on with City Field suppressing exit velocity and offense. Oh, yeah, and you know- no one is quite sure why. Yeah, I did read that the other day, and that is an interesting mystery. Yeah, I should I should look more into that. Because yeah, <laughs> I can try, tell you that I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that is like sort of a, an interesting question. Yeah, um, and you've definitely sort of felt like physics has come into play in baseball stadiums before. Like I don't know, most obviously with the Rockies mm-hmm. and how like the the thin atmosphere there affects the the game. And it would be interesting to see if there was some you know, mysterious force surrounding city fields. You know, maybe it's all the plane. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> but it would yeah. be interesting to look into. Get a, a sample of Queen's air and bring it to CERN <laughs> and back some stuff on it and see what yeah, shows up. Yeah, <laughs> and try to sort that out um, <laughs> rebuild it somewhere else. But <laughs> Yeah. Well, let me ask you a non-scientific question about mm-hmm. Mets fandom because I alluded to this on our last episode. I've talked about it a bit before, and I think Mets fans get mad at me when I say this, but it is my contention that Mets fandom has not suffered as much as it makes itself out to be suffering just relative to other fan bases that have had it equally bad or possibly worse. I'm not saying it's been great to be a Mets fan over the last Mm -hmm. several years. It's been a challenge, but they were in the World Series just a few years ago, as you mentioned. And they have been good during your lifetime, (laughs) which would (laughs) not be the case with some other teams. So it's been bad in a lot of ways, and it's, it's a big market team. And so you kind of hold them to different standards, I guess. But I don't know. Is it New York-centric, like big city, like we should be the best, and therefore if we're not the best, we have it harder than everyone else? Or do you think it's a legitimate complaint that Mets fans have suffered and have earned their right to be bitter about everything? I think the everyone has a right to be bitter about their team being bad. However, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, mean, I think like Mets fans sort of probably not uniquely suffer but there's always sort of a gap between sort of like fan expectation and it comes off as the, you know, ownership in the front office being sort of unwilling to commit to changes that a lot of Mets fans think would help the team. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of the Mets fans suffering comes from like the idea that the Mets are a big market team that a lot of time Mets fans think is managed and like a small market team that there's sort of like a, a disconnect between so the fans' expectations and what is delivered in the team as a final product. And so, but there are teams that have suffered more <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I mean, was, was it not, fundamentally what I have trouble with is it, was it not just a few seasons that the Mets went to the World Series? <laughs> I mean, that's I'm, enough I, of a surprise to me that like that'll hold me over for like a, a couple more years probably because <laughs> I was not expecting the Mets to be to be super good that season and that was a lot of fun to watch the second half of that season so yeah if you could figure out something about the physics of health and pitcher strain (laughs) and keeping guys off the dl that might be beneficial too yeah for sure i've definitely been like reading about some interesting biomechanics research that people are doing that's kind of insane trying to to figure out sort of the injury risks of different Mm -hmm. players which i think is really is really cool i don't know a whole lot about that i think it's interesting So I know when when I'm not working and working on baseball, then generally if I'm going to make conversation, I want to make conversation about something else, whether that be volcanoes or just like mountains or, or something, squirrels, something unrelated. And, and as for Ben, if he's not working on baseball, I am given to understand that he enjoys to talk about things that aren't baseball as well. So when when you when you are to work, are you are you one of the rare like a few who actually is so passionate about what you do that you just want to talk about that all the time, or would you rather when you're off the clock, would you rather talk about what you do, or would you rather talk about the Mets? <laughs> well, considering I have way fewer opportunities to talk about the Mets, I'm always ready to talk about the Mets off of work. Most of sort of my my social group here in LA is a lot of uh, fellow engineers and uh, and scientists, so do talk about work off the clock a decent amount so every time that i find a baseball fan or so like 
that's a lot of fun. So <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of overlap between baseball fans and scientists historically, or at least sabermetric mm -hmm. researchers and scientists. It's just not quite the same as baseball fans in general. But is there like a, a favorite sport at JPL? Is, is there, if there is a favorite sport at all, would it be baseball or are other things still more popular as water cooler conversation? Considering that we are in LA, I think baseball has definitely been more of a topic than other sports. Um, because you have a lot of Dodgers fans. And so there's always a lot of Dodgers news because they've been good. So I won't say that people generally talk about sports in casual conversation at JPL. That's not really the largest interest probably of, of most JPLers. But <laughs> out of all the sports, I would say it is discussed you know, pretty often. I have some baseball fan friends at work. And you know, we are always talking about you know what's going on with the Dodgers. But yeah. I think out of the whole nerd population in general, I think baseball is a pretty common sport to be a fan of. Mm -hmm. So considering that we have encountered some challenges just getting your Bluetooth <laughs> headphones to pair with your computer for this interview, I'm sure it cannot be easy to communicate with spacecraft in orbit around a, a distant planet or even on that distant planet in the future. So tell us about your day-to-day -day job, I guess. Now, how does your work break down between the MRO and Mars 2020? And to the extent that you can, without losing all of us, because we know nothing, what do you do? Yeah, so uh, first of all, how we communicate with our spacecraft, no matter where they are in the solar system, is through three large ground stations around the world. So we have one in Goldstone, California, which is about four hours east of LA. Uh, we have one in Madrid in Spain and one in Australia. And we use these stations to both send commands up to all the spacecrafts um, and to receive data from all the spacecraft. And so my day-to-day -day duties on MRO, which is a spacecraft that's currently in operation, I work on building sequences for it. So I'm part of a team that sort of writes a big plan out of, for what that spacecraft is going to do. Um, we build it for two weeks at a time, and my team schedules all of the communication. So when it's going to talk to, to Earth, like to those DSN stations that I mentioned, and when it's going to talk to other spacecrafts, in particular the rovers and the landers, and when it's also going to do certain engineering activities that we schedule to sort of keep it in operation and keep it healthy. One, one of the important things that MRO does besides science is a relay. So when um, like Curiosity and the New Lander Insight, um, when they take data, um, they, they send that data up to MRO and then MRO sends it back to Earth. And so we coordinate overflights where we fly over these landers where they can send us data. Um, there are a few other orbiters that also work on this, but that's like sort of a primary thing that, that my team works on on MRO um, is scheduling when to do those communications. And then for 2020, I have kind of a different role. I'm doing more sort of like software development stuff. So one of the things that I'm working on is uh, how we're going to be able to determine that the rover is healthy on a day-to-day -day basis. The rover planning goes pretty much every day. We plan one day at a time in the rover's life. And so at the beginning of the day, when you get into work, you want to be able to quickly see as an operator that everything from the previous day executed as expected and that you know there's nothing dangerous that happened to the rover and make sure that everything's okay on board. And so the software that I'm working on for my 2020 team will help the operations people sort of quickly within the first 20 minutes or so decide that, you know, everything happened according to plan or that if things didn't go according to plan, it's okay. And then be able to move on to the next planning phase. And so for people who are wondering why uh, we're sending another rover to Mars, we've had a few. There are a couple still there, although mm -hmm. opportunity is uh, still quiet and hibernating and hopefully we'll communicate again someday. But what is kind of the, the main objective or the main objectives of the mission? Why do we keep going back? Um, so 2020 has a sort of different set of responsibilities than our current rover Curiosity or MRB, Opportunity, we call MRB. So one of uh, the things that 2020 is going to do differently than the previous missions is that it will actually cache samples. So when it drills into rocks or the ground, um, it'll store that sample that it gets in a little tube and it'll cache that tube in like sort of a, a pile of, of, of samples that will later be returned to Earth. And so it's sort of like the first mission is sequence of missions that JPL is going to send where we determine that we can sort of build a cache of material that we can keep 
like clean and keep pristine samples, collect them at sort of scientifically interesting sites, and then eventually return those to Earth um, with future missions. There are also a few different instruments on 2020 that weren't on Curiosity. A lot of the instruments are sort of next generation upgrades from the ones that we were set, that we sent on Curiosity. But one new one is a tech demo for creating a oxygen out of the Martian atmosphere, uh, which is an important thing that we need to demonstrate is possible before we send sort of more complex missions um, that need to sort of launch off of Mars or to send humans to Mars. And so 2020 is sort of the first spacecraft in a series of sp spacecrafts that we want to send to demonstrate that we can sort of send stuff to Mars and get stuff back, sort of to prepare for a future human mission. And I don't know if it's the most important part of the mission, but it has a helicopter. And I want you to tell me about the helicopter scout, which sounds like something that would be difficult to do on Mars where there's not a whole lot of atmosphere. So how do you make something fly on Mars? Yeah, the Mars helicopter is a very cool project. Um, it was sort of a late addition to the program and it has it's very cute it has these huge blades <laughs> and it's kind of it's very small and has these huge blades because it needs to fly in the very thin Martian atmosphere it will be sent with the rover and then the rover will release it after it lands and it will do a few sort of test flights it's also a tech demo so we're not expecting to get science data out of it per se it's just like a demonstration of you know to characterize how well it works and it's very cool. It will do, I think it has around five planned flights in its mission, but it's technically a different mission. It's just flying along with 2020, but hopefully we'll get some really cool data from it. And it is really exciting to send. So yeah, everyone was pleased to find out that it, that it was going. So um, it's currently being built along with 2020. And if you come to JPL, if, if you look at like the clean room there, you can see uh, certain parts of 2020 coming together, which is really exciting. Yeah, over the past few minutes, you've explained to us in some detail what it is that you do. And of course, you were just talking about the helicopter. Now, you've already said that most of your social circle in Los Angeles is fellow engineers, but you must have occasion every so often to meet a stranger, family friend, friend of a friend, that kind of thing. And when when you introduce yourself and you say what you do, is that one of those things that leads to a lot of follow-up questions or pretty much like none? Usually a lot of follow-up questions, I would say. Most people are pretty interested in what we're doing, um, which I think is great. It's important to keep interest high. What are then, uh, what what would be, I know we're, we're here asking you some list of some obvious questions, but what are the, the most common questions that you are, you're getting from people with however often you are interacting with people that you hadn't met before? I do get a lot of questions about sort of like competition and sort of um, how space has opened up to um, commercial interests. I get asked that a lot. I don't know if that's just people I meet that care about <laughs> like startups and stuff that are in space. Um, but I get asked a lot about what is sort of NASA's role in space versus these uh, newer companies that are also putting stuff into space and uh, sort of what our major goals are as an agency. A lot of people think that NASA is kind of uh, too conservative of an agency, which is, I guess, a little fair. But a lot of questions about when we're planning on sending human astronauts to Mars and a lot of questions about politics recently, so um, how the drama in the federal government has impacted us. So I think those are sort of the most common lines of inquiry <laughs> is either like a commercialization or like, so you guys need to pay attention to what goes on in Congress kind of a thing, which, which we do. What is it like to work on something that is so long-term oriented? I mean, solar system exploration missions go on for decades, the planning and the building and then the traveling, and it's just such a long-term process. There are people who have been working on missions from the 70s and 80s since they started. Now, you have come in a little bit later. I guess the, the Mars 2020 mission officially was announced in December 2012. I'm sure it started in some way before that, but still you're looking at, I mean, you know it's supposed to launch in July 2020. It's supposed to land on a specific day, 18th of February 2021 currently and so you can mark that on your calendar and know that it's going to be really exciting and also anxiety inducing and terrifying because it's never a routine matter to land something on another planet and have it be in one piece on the other end. You mentioned you can see it slowly being assembled. I mean that's got to be kind of cool but also difficult just to wait to see the results. Yeah that's true. Working on Mars missions I think is definitely the easy mode for 
time, a lot of the scientists who work on, you know, either like the Jupiter system or Saturn system, you know, it takes like many, many years for spacecraft to even get to uh, to Jupiter, Saturn or beyond after they're launched. And so there are a lot of scientists um, at JPL and around the world who are working with data that, you know, you may only have one or two missions go in your lifetime that can collect data for your research goals. And it's kind of mind boggling to me as well. But I think it also sort of every time that we've sent a mission somewhere, we've learned a lot. Um, there's no shor- shortage of interesting questions to ask about the solar system or outside the solar system. And so I think a lot of the, the scientists here who are probably sort of frustrated by, you know, our, our physical limits and our economical limits are sustained by the satisfaction of looking at something that in a way that has never been looked at before and be able to learn something about, you know, a new environment that is always surprising and and always interesting. And so I think on the long term scale, like it is, they are long term projects. All of our missions are long term, but the rewards that you get are also like, you know, can sustain you for a long term as well. So yeah, I think a lot of the people are very passionate about their subjective research and and they you know just love the opportunity to be able to argue for a mission to get sent and to like have that mission go through to completion um is really satisfying it's like a it's like a five-year plan it's one of the reasons that uh the baseball executives never get fired anymore is because everyone's got a five-year long-term plan and so it just takes a while for it to see how things work out so this is good for your job security you just keep pointing to the long term there's no reason for you to be dismissed in the uh, in the immediate anyway unrelated to that there, there's an article posted today to uh, to nature it's titled earth's magnetic field is acting up and geologists don't know why it talks about the erratic motion of the northern magnetic pole and you can tell me if i'm stupid or wrong right away but to what extent if any in in your work do you have to worry about or account for polar drift or even the uh, the dreaded reversal or flip um we are concerned with like geomagnetic storms i know those can have an effect on some of our earth satellites and they can also have some effects. I think most normally we have effects on our DSN, like our ground stations from just normal weather, but space weather is definitely also can impact the you know amount of data that we get per like attempt to send data. I think a lot of the Earth missions that we have, a lot of them are sort of more interested in, you know, I guess just studying whatever that they can study about like the drift of the magnetic poles. And that's not something that is super well, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about this, so I don't want to say anything that's wrong, but I don't think that we're super concerned about magnetic drift or even a magnetic reversal. I think neither of those cases sort of are indicative of some planetary catastrophe or sudden planetary catastrophe. So I think, I mean, I I hope (laughs) that we're not too concerned about that outside of maybe some of the performance impacts that a, a large magnetic event would have on our Earth satellites that uh, drift in and out of. Well, that's good. We can worry about the other planetary catastrophes instead. I think, yeah, I think there are other planetary <laughs> catastrophes uh, that would matter more. <laughs> So one way I can tenuously tie this back to baseball, I think, is that in both astronomy and baseball, there are really thriving citizen scientist communities. And there's a lot of work that gets done on the internet, whether it's crowdsourced stuff, whether it's image processing, a lot of initiatives that actual valuable science gets done. And obviously that's been the case in baseball too, where data will get out, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, Sometimes the crowd and the public actually gather that data, but it's a little different now in that lots of the leading sabermetricians get hired by teams, but there's still a lot of valuable research that gets done and that teams pay attention to. Is that the case in your work as well, that there are people out there on the internet just doing interesting work or valuable work that you will look at and discuss and say, hey, maybe we can incorporate something here? Yes, uh, that's definitely the case. We have had sort of amateur astronomers that have uh, like discovered new asteroids, which is obviously always a good like plus to us to like be able to catalog new objects. And so there's definitely a big community of amateur astronomers that, that NASA really sort of depends on. We also sort of are required to have a lot of sort of public engagement. And the more that we can involve people with sort of NASA's uh, missions and science goals, the better. And there are sort of a growing number of citizen science focused projects, either whether or not they're sort of analyzing images. So like as a 
citizen scientists, you can go online and volunteer to sort of characterize various images and, uh, you know, like find uh, different patterns in those and like submit those to a big database. And there's been a lot of cool results that have come out of rather than having like some, you know, poor group of, of grad students go through, you know, 100,000 images trying to, to pick out the interesting parts that you can actually, you know, train citizens to do it. And then the public has like a sort of granted interest and can learn some science along the way. And it helps sort of everyone be able to make more discoveries and also improve sort of science literacy um, among people. Because the more that you can communicate to people, the better. One person that I knew in undergrad, who I went to a, um, like a talk with once, said something that's, that's stuck with me since that was like, if the general public doesn't understand, you know, if it's earth science or astronomy or solar system science or anything about Mars, then it's not the general public's fault. Like, you know, it's, it's our fault for not communicating better with them. And so that definitely stuck with me as sort of a, a statement of, of responsibility towards the, the public education part of um, NASA's mission and other science missions. And I think that's important no matter what you're doing in science. Like if you can't communicate it to the public, then, you know, it's worth a lot less than it could be. So you are a systems engineer. You are on Twitter. I'm looking at your Twitter profile right now. You're talking about the the abundance of citizen science. I don't know what the science astronomy version of Fangraphs would be, but I'm sure that it exists. But one thing that I think Ben and I are both aware of being on Twitter and dealing with sports is that sometimes baseball Twitter is bad. Is astronomy Twitter good? No. <laughs> is the short answer. <laughs> um, I know there there is a lot of abuse thrown around not at me per se because i'm not popular enough on twitter but a lot of the <laughs> more popular um, science communications twitter accounts that i follow um of like fellow scientists who engage a lot on twitter it's it can be a rough rough go there's like a lot of sort of unfair abuse and other social ills um especially if you happen to be you know female or minority in some way it can get really sort of nasty on twitter along with other social media i presume so the short answer is is like no, it's probably not better than 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 baseball Twitter. So uh, we we were uh, talking to my friend Eric Clemetti a while ago, uh, an Earth Sciences professor at, at Denison College, and I like talking to him because I'm a volcano nerd. And one of the things that I have become aware of through through his work and writing is that there exist a lot of frauds, a lot uh, a lot of people who who like to suggest that they can predict earthquakes or predict volcanic eruptions, which at present are just not things that can be done. Certainly with regard to the earthquake. So is there in your field? Can you think of some sort of of an equivalent of just people, <laughs> frauds, quacks who, who come off making these broad proclamations to uh, to draw attention that just don't really exist? And I guess one would be you know, extraterrestrials, but outside of maybe the obvious one, is there any equivalent? Yeah, I think there are definitely a few other obvious ones that I can think of are like the conspiracy theories for the moon landings being fake, the conspiracy theories about flat earth and, you know, NASA lying to you and making up pictures or whatever. I don't know, really, they're, <laughs> they're <laughs> pseudo arguments, but there's definitely sort of a competing like source of not correct information that's trying to communicate with the public, which I think is what makes sort of our outreach more important is to not like, like Steph Curry came out and said he didn't think the moon landings were real. I'm like, we, we, you know, we can't have that. <laughs> you know, these are like influential people that are, you know, promoting these like fake theories for who knows what reason. I don't really know what motivates a lot of the like, conspiracy theorists, but it's sort of like frustrating to see when, you know, that sort of, gains traction in the wider community. And then, you know, you have public distrust towards groups like NASA or CERN, which is another big target of conspiracy theorists, you know, about that the Large Hadron Collider is going to open a, you know, hell portal or <laughs> that we're Create a black inviting hole, demons yeah. <laughs> into the world or something. So, <laughs> so that is frustrating to everyone who works in science or around science is to, you know, try to, to combat those forces. I know like when you like even go to YouTube and search CERN, like their whole front page are like these wild conspiracy theories. You know, you need to go like page two before you find like an actual CERN video. And I think that's, I think it's really something that we need to figure out sort of as the, you know, science and engineering community and maybe with the help of like social media to also sort of, I don't want to say like crack down, but sort of be able to promote things that are more correct rather than sensational and 
but I don't know. That's a hard question, <laughs> but there's definitely like a lot of uh, misinformation out there about science and uh, the the mission of a lot of scientific agencies. And I think a lot of our, that sort of responsibility for fixing that like does fall to the scientific community. And but there's no real sort of easy answer there. And you know that's something that a lot of people are worried about. That I think is rightly so. Yeah. Well, maybe our last question, other than Mars, because I don't want you to hurt anyone's feelings, where are you most excited to explore, let's say, in your lifetime, future mission, maybe some of the lessons that are learned from the missions you're working on now could help us go somewhere else? What's the most exciting solar system target for you and why? Uh, yeah, I think a mission that I'm really looking forward to and that a lot of people at JPL are looking forward to is um, our Europa mission, which is our next flagship mission after Mars 2020. It's, launch, it's expected to launch somewhere around 2026. And this will be an orbiter to Europa, which is the moon of Jupiter, uh, which is sort of arisen as a primary target for people looking for life in the solar system outside of Earth, because Europa has uh, what we believe to be a heated ocean underneath a large ice uh, surface. Um, and so anytime that you have heat and water, um, what we found on Earth over the past few decades has been even in almost the near total absence of light, that life can originate in those environments. And so that's sort of one of the missions that I'm really looking forward to. I think Europa is a really interesting science target, and I think it's uh, very cool um, that we're getting to send a mission there. So eagerly awaiting those results, you know, about 10 years from now or so, more than that, but... <laughs> That's definitely a mission that we're really excited to to start ramping up on at JPL um, outside of Mars. So um, yeah. that'll be a really cool target. I'm also sort of interested in some other like moons of Saturn. As you know, Cassini, we ended the Cassini mission in 2017. Mm-hmm. And Cassini took a lot of really good data about moons of Saturn that are really interesting, uh, like Enceladus and Titan. And, and so a future mission that, you know, I would want to proposed uh, would be to go back to Enceladus to look more at the the plumes there and the really interesting geological processes there. So I think that would be really exciting to look at as well. There's lots to look forward to. Yeah, there's no shortage of places to go and the MRO has enough fuel to operate for another, uh, what, 15 years-ish. So you've got plenty of time if you want to keep doing what you're doing. But if you do decide to go into baseball and help the Mets out, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would be pleased about that. We will keep up with what you are doing and what JPL are doing. And best of luck hitting the right crater that you have targeted to hit and not hitting it too hard. We hope that uh, the missions are a success and everyone can find Shannon on Twitter at SShannonT. Thank you very much for taking time out of your day for this. Yes, thank you so much too. Thanks for having me. All right, that will do it for today. Thanks for listening. That was a treat for me. Hopefully it was a treat for you too. I had another NASA JPL systems engineer, Molly Bittner, on a video game podcast once to talk about Cassini. So basically I will try to shoehorn a NASA JPL systems engineer into any podcast I do. If you work on space stuff, let me know. Maybe I'll find an excuse to get you on a podcast sometime. So Jeff and I talked about what we thought was the big Brewers signing of the day, Jake Patrika. Turns out if Jake Patrika makes the Brewers, he's going to be throwing to Yasmani Grant. Dahl, who signed a one-year $18.25 million deal with Milwaukee. Again, that is one year $18.25 million for Yasmani Grandal. Kind of incredible. Jeff and I talked about the state of the free agent market and baseball economics on our last episode. This would be the latest sign of the free agent apocalypse. You have Yasmani Grandal, who by some measures is the best catcher in baseball over the past few years, if you take framing into account. I mentioned I'm about to be on these top 10 positional ranking shows on MLB Network. I will spoil one thing. Yasmani Grandal, second on my list of catchers. He's just a good player. It's kind of ironic that he went to the Brewers because Brewers fans are probably predisposed to thinking that Grandal is worse than he was because, of course, they got to see him in the NLCS last year. Not his finest hour, but he's been about an average blocker over the past little while. And, of course, he's one of the very best framers in baseball, and he's been a good hitter. And he just turned 30. If that guy has to settle for a one-year deal, something has gone awry.
Rye. Now, there has been some reporting that Grandal was offered or might have been offered or was in discussions that could have led to an offer with the Mets that would have been in the neighborhood of four years and 50 to $60 million. If that's the case, then you have to lay some blame at his agent's door for misreading the market, thinking that there would be way more out there for Yes Money Grandal. Maybe there should be, but it doesn't seem all that likely that there ever would have been. Still, one year and $18.25 million. Yes, he came with a qualifying offer, but that is just a pittance for a player of his skill. So quite a bargain for the Brewers. We're now in what's shaping up to be an intensely competitive NL Central. This is a big upgrade for them. Gotta hand it to them. They went and got Kane and Yelich last winter. They went and got Grandal now. Not to mention Jake Patrika. We've talked a lot about how they've done this rebuild. There's a lot to admire and emulate there. The Dodgers have lost a lot of talent this winter. Voluntarily, obviously. But seems like they still have some work to do. Maybe Grandal gets paid next winter because he won't be subject to the qualifying offer and that NLCS performance will be behind him and if he has a good year he could definitely cash in then instead of now but you just can't count on that anymore I know Grandal's not really regarded as a superstar but you look at the numbers if you include the receiving he sort of is the market's just a mess right now so Jeff and I will probably touch on this at greater length next time you can support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already done so. Max Smith, Colin Simning, Katie Razor, Will Crosby, and Shane Shuby. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcastfangraphs.com or via the Patreon message system if you are a supporter and thanks to dylan higgins for his editing assistance we will be back with one more episode this week talk to you soon i'm off on a rocket ship prepare for something new i'm off on a rocket ship ecstatic with the view i am scared